Today's Bible reading is from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. This is God's Word. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Cephas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our fathers. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the roots of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectations, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, and the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is God's Word. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you all again. Um, today we're continuing our series in the book of Luke. Um, so if, you've, if you have your Bibles on you, um, keep them open to Luke chapter 3 and we'll be um, tracking through that passage together. Um, but how about I pray as we begin. 
Heavenly Father, please um, now open our eyes, um, open our hearts to see your word, um, understand it, and to be transformed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, change is always hard. Um, if you're anything like me, you've, um, you know, COVID's made you a little bit of a creature of habit. Um, I'll give you some examples. So, um, basically, all through lockdown, um, for the whole six months, uh, Nat and I, we ate the same lunch every day for the whole six months. I'll show you what it was. It was, it was these wraps from, um, uh, that, that, that used Jamie Oliver fish fingers in them. And um, even just the sight of these fish fingers, even just the sight of Jamie Oliver's face now, it just makes me gag, because uh, I can't stand the sight of these fish fingers anymore. <laughs> Another example, um, every day we walk the same walking trail every day for six months during lunch for 45 minutes. Um, without question, we do that. Um, and of course, we were both um, born in Melbourne, raised in Melbourne, we worked in Melbourne, we studied in Melbourne, I'm pretty sure we're going to die in Melbourne as well because we hate change. Every, like, a lot of us hate change. Change makes us uh, feel uncomfortable. It introduces uncertainty. Um, change requires effort. Um, psychologists say that we are hardwired to resist change. Um, that's why there's this whole body of literature uh, devoted to something called change management. Um, and, and so we know that organizations, they are always needing to prepare their people for change. Because as humans, we just don't like it. We kind of like our lives, we like our routines as they are now, and we don't really want anyone messing around with this. But this resistance to the gospel, um, sorry, this resistance to change, is going to collide head-on with the message of the gospel. Um, and what we'll see today is that you can't follow Christ and not change. No, change is inherent in the call to follow Christ. Um, another word for change is repentance. And we're going to see today why repentance is the best way to prepare for the coming of Jesus. And this brings us to our first section, which is that repentance is essential. Repentance is essential. Um, as we begin uh, today, I want you to observe the world that we're in. Um, you'll see in chapter 3 that Luke gives so much detail in verses 1 and 2 about politics, about leaders, because he's not interested in writing fiction, of course, he's recording history. And so many of these details here that you'll see, they're also backed up by other historians of the time, um, such as Josephus, who was a Jewish historian. But more than this, um, all these names that Luke refers to here, they communicate complexity and corruption. So you'll see a foreign ruler in Tiberias, a, a, a compromised local ruler in Herod, and a corrupt priesthood. So from a, from a social, from a political, from even a religious point of view, we are living in a dark world. And of course, it's not just Israel's enemies who are corrupt. No, it's their own people too. Even these priests that were supposed to be their spiritual leaders. And so it's into this type of world that the Word of God comes through John to prepare us to meet God. And John's message is, is there in verse 3. He proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. 
Repentance means a change of mind. It means a reorientation of our thoughts, our our wills and our lives towards God. And John's baptism symbolizes this repentance. It means being buried to your old life and now rising to live a completely new life. It's a message of good news. It's a message that God has made a way to forgive sin, that God's opened up the floodgates for forgiveness and reconciliation. But it's also an urgent message of change, because God Himself is coming. You know, when I first became a Christian, man, I thought this was a pretty great deal. I, I gained so many friends. Um, We get to go on camps together. I get to see my mates twice a week now. Um, Nice to know that God loves me too. Um, And you know what? I just need to give a little bit of money on the side. And hey, everything's all good. I saw Christianity as just this convenient addition to my life. But actually, little did I know what repentance really meant. Repentance isn't just adding a few things. It's not just altering a few habits. But repentance is a radical reorientation of everything. I want you to look at verse 4. It's a quote from Isaiah 40. It's the voice of this prophet crying out to prepare us for God who would save them out of the exile. And now um, John, he's taking up this voice of the prophet. And you'll see here it's about preparing a highway or a path for the Lord to come. But look at the nature of the change required for His coming. You'll see that preparing for the Lord isn't just building conveniently around the roads and the valleys and the mountains. No, it's different. Preparing for the Lord's about flattening the mountains. It's about filling in the valleys. Repentance is an entire, it's changing this entire landscape of our lives. These roadworks here, they're describing a radical path of change that in verse 6, they lead us to see the salvation of God. Repentance is essential because it's not just a turning away from sin, but it's a turning to God to see His salvation. I wonder if that's how you would describe your life, as one of repentance and change. You know, I'm sure we all wish we were a little bit further on in our godliness than we are right now. But have we seen any growth? Have we seen any change over the last year as you think back? Or as you think back, has there been even any desire within you to change? John comes to shake us into action because repentance is essential for salvation. So what is it? What does repentance actually look like? And that takes us to our next section, that repentance is radical. Repentance is radical. Look at how, the, um, how John addresses the crowds in verse 7. He says, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Imagine opening a church service like that. Hey, you brood of vipers, I really want to welcome you to Cross Culture this morning. Thanks so much for joining us. That's offensive, isn't it? Because the crowd assumes they're on God's side. I mean, that's why they're there. They're there to be baptized. But instead, John addresses them 
as God's enemies. Remember, it's the serpent, it's the snake that tempted these first humans to sin in the Garden of Eden. So what's this problem? I mean, the crowds are the ones coming to John to be baptised. Why does John address them as God's enemies? Well, it's because they didn't understand what repentance really was. So John says to the crowd in verse 8, he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. They needed to know that baptism alone, that words alone, just religious actions alone weren't enough. Baptism is just an external sign, of course, symbolizing this radical change that needs to take place within. So John says, bear fruit consistent with your profession of repentance. Don't just say you'll change, but change. I don't know if um, you have friends that are constantly late to things. Um, I have to kind of classify myself in, in, in this now after the last week that I've had. Um, but whenever um, people come late, they're always saying, oh man, I'm so sorry I'm late. But then what I realize is it just keeps happening. And each time they say, oh man, I'm just so sorry I'm late. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry I'm late. But then if this keeps happening, I start to question whether we're sorry at all. We keep saying we're sorry, but then we keep doing the same things we're sorry for. It's probably not a genuine apology, right? See, repentance is not just saying you're sorry to God, but it's changing. It's changing your whole life to align with Him. It's not just vowing to change, but it's changing. No change, no repentance. And so this is the danger, that we too can be baptised, we too can come to church every week, we too can sing and profess our, a devotion to God with our lips, but our lives can tell a very different story. Of course, many of us might be able to recite this great commission in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. But how many of us actually live the great commission? I often find that I'm, I'm, I'm sharing my struggles about being able to pray and read the Bible, but how many times do I actually do something about it? Or maybe you might find yourself confessing these same sins over and over again, sharing them with people, but then making absolutely no effort to change. Well, judgment is coming, says John, because repentance is radical. Now, I want to be very clear here that John's actually not coming after those who are convicted with sin, but he's coming after those who are complacent with sin. He's not speaking to people who struggle with sin, who try and fail and then try again. No, he's actually speaking to people that don't try at all, that don't struggle at all. And so while these crowds are coming to John to be baptised, they're professing repentance with their lips. They didn't realise the implications that Jesus is coming and everything 
must change. And this need for radical repentance, there are no exceptions. John continues in verse 8, Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. No one's immune from this need to repent. We can't hide behind our religious heritage. Uh, For the Jews, they couldn't hide behind Abraham as their father or their ancestor. Verse 9 says, The axe of judgment is ready to cut down every tree, every person that doesn't bear fruit of repentance. Growing up in church never saved anyone at all. Being a pastor or a church leader never saved anyone. I can't hide behind my position as a leader. I can't even hide behind the good things I've done in the past. Because everyone is called to repent and everyone must turn to God for forgiveness. And this is the danger, that some of us might look like we have a relationship with God because of our position, our background, our history, but in reality, we might not. And of course, though we can fool everyone else, you can't fool God who sees everything. Now, don't hear me wrong here. John's not advocating this works-based righteousness. It's not that we need to do good things to be saved. But what John is saying here is that our actions will prove the genuineness of the faith that we produce that we profess. That's why John here talks about the fruit of repentance. It's the fruit that proves the reality of the tree. So if God has changed you, if you've really been forgiven, it would change everything. It wouldn't just change you on a Sunday. It would change your thoughts, your your words, your actions every day. Anyway, this is a hard word for us to hear, and it's a hard word for these crowds to hear. So in verse 10, they ask, what then shall we do? What does it look like? So John shows us what repentance looks like now for three different types of people. And as we look at this, I want you to notice how specific repentance is. So though everyone's called to repent, there's no one that's immune, it looks different for different types of people. So for the crowds, it means generosity. It means extending mercy to the poor. For the tax collectors and the soldiers, it means acting now with integrity, not using our positions to extort people, to take advantage of people, but instead to treat other people justly. So of course now, repentance means we can't keep saying you're sorry to God while continuing to ignore people in need. You can't keep saying you're sorry while continuing to take advantage of people. So if there's a sin in your life that you're aware of right now, that comes to mind as we speak, well, you need to stop. We need to stop. But notice as well here, that repentance isn't just refraining from doing the wrong thing, but repentance puts a positive obligation for us to do the right thing. So you can't just say, you know what, I, just, I don't hurt anyone, I keep to myself. But if we really got repentance, we'd see how it reorients our life to positively care for the needy. Of course, if we're recipients of God's mercy, then mercy, helping the helpless, will flow naturally from our lives. 
But also, not just, don't just look at what's different here. I want you to see what all these three situations have in common. They all deal with money. John says here that how true repentance can be seen in someone's life by how we use our money. Isn't it interesting that how money is linked with repentance? But often how we use our money can give us quite a good snapshot into our life. If you look at your credit card statement, maybe like me, you could tell a lot about what we value, what we think is important. Um, There's a catchphrase um, called follow the money. I don't know if you've heard of that before, but it it basically goes that where I can follow the money, where where I follow a money trail, what does that reveal about corruption? What does that reveal about what I desire the most? And I think John presses into money here because this money can be a great idol of our hearts. It can consume our thoughts, feel like we never have enough, always wanting more. But radical repentance here means it actually reorients the way that we use our money. So Jesus says to the crowds, you've got two eunuchs, share with someone that doesn't have any. And I'm guessing that some of us might have more than two outfits here. So instead of just thinking about ourselves, well, actually, by repenting, we should actively look for ways to provide for the needs around us. Um, I I know personally, I'm always struck um, when I read um, about the Barnabas Fund, about how you can donate porridge for a child uh, for a whole month for just $8. Um, Or you can help send a child to school in Pakistan for one month for just $4. Man, that's the coffee that I had this morning. Now, John says the way we prepare for God is through radical change. Change not just with our words, but with our lives and with our wallets. So how do we do this? How on earth can we change at such a deep level? heart level. How is it done? Which brings us to our last section, that repentance is possible. Repentance is possible. John speaks here with such conviction that people even start to question whether he's the Messiah himself. But if you think this is impressive, well, you haven't seen anything yet. John says here that the person coming after him is a completely different class of his own. In verse 16, I I baptize you with water, John says, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the the, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now remember that um, John is regarded by Jesus himself as the greatest person who has ever lived. But even the greatest person who has ever lived is still unworthy to untie the sandals of the Messiah. It's a dirty job. But such is the magnitude of this person to come that John isn't even worthy to be his lowest slave. And so where John calls people to repent, the one who's coming will make heart repentance possible. Of course, John just baptizes with water on the outside, symbolizing our purification. But Jesus, in verse 16, will baptize us with the Spirit on the inside, providing for our purification. 
often with repentance, we can actually feel really helpless. I don't know if you feel like you want to change, but you just can't. But actually, this change that Jesus demands here is enabled by Him too. It's enabled by the Spirit on the inside. I remember when I um, became a Christian, I, I, I remember just seeing these desires within me change, my values change away from my old life um, and to this new life to follow Him. And I, I just later realized that that was actually genuinely a work of the Spirit. And so Jesus comes to baptize us with the Spirit. But notice that Jesus also comes to baptize us with fire. You know, sometimes we thought about this baptism of fire in verse 16 as this powerful spiritual experience that happens to someone. But if you look at the context, you'll see that fire here is a strong metaphor for judgment. Fire is not a good thing. Things get thrown into the fire to be destroyed. You want to avoid the fire. You'll see this image in verse 17. It's an image of harvest time where the grain is separated from the chaff. So the farmer here collects the grain while the chaff blows away. And that's what Jesus will come to do. His baptism will divide humanity into two groups. He's going to gather and save the the repentant. But those who refuse to repent will be blown away in judgment and will be tossed into the fire. It's a terrifying picture. John urges us to repent because of what happens if we don't. And honestly, repentance is actually hard work. Just because repentance is possible here, doesn't mean it's easy, right? Um, I, when, when we become Christian, sin doesn't just magically fall away, but it still requires effort. And change is, is hard because we kind of like the way our lives are. We don't like change. It's hard changing the way we use our money. We kind of like our lifestyle that we have right now. We find it very hard to stop giving in to temptation because, hey, temptation can be actually a nice outlet or, or, or a nice release when we're feeling tired, when we're feeling frustrated. You know, we'd rather not stop asking people, we'd rather not get people to help us feel accountable because we kind of like our autonomy, our independence as it is. So hear this, even though repentance is enabled by God, it will still require effort. John Piper says, when it comes to killing my sin, I don't wait for the miracle. No, I I act the miracle. But the tragedy is that true repentance will be too hard for some. Um, Herod in verse 19, he can't handle it. He's already married to his half-sister. They've already left other marriages to be together. Repentance would be too hard. It would be too messy for them. And so when given the choice here of repenting or ignoring God, Herod chooses the latter. So he shuts John up and throws him into prison. It's a tragedy. And the judgment of God will come against him. You might feel this too. You might be thinking, man, this is all too hard. There's, there's too much to give up. There's too much to change. Or maybe I'm far too gone. 
Repentance is possible because of what Jesus will do next. If you skip down to verse 21, you'll see that Jesus himself is baptized. And you might ask, why does Jesus need to be baptized? He had nothing to repent of. He had no sins to be forgiven for. Well, this is the wonder of the gospel. That Jesus' baptism doesn't show us what he will do for himself, but Jesus' baptism shows us what he will do for us on our behalf. That Jesus himself will go through a baptism of fire, and on the cross he will be consumed by God's fire and God's wrath for us in our place so that now he can carry us as sinners, as those who are too helpless, as people who are far too gone. So man, if you think, man, there's just too much to give up, well, you need to know that Jesus gave everything for you. He who is without sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or if you think, I'm too far gone, Well, you need to know Jesus rose again to conquer death and to give us life, to transform us by His Spirit. No, because of the cross, now we should only know repentance and life and change. So maybe as as we're here today, maybe you've come to the realization that you've never really repented. And you realize that maybe if God came back today, that we would actually stand under His judgment. If this is you, well, you need to change. God invites you, turn away from your sin, turn to Christ instead. It seems like bad news. But in verse 18, it's described as good news. It's the greatest news in the world. It's not just a message of judgment. John preaches a message of salvation. Repentance now means God has made a way to turn to him and be saved. But the good news is that this solution doesn't lie within us. The solution is Jesus. And as we look to him, who's far more glorious, who's far more magnificent, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie, who experienced the fires of baptism for us on that cross so that we could be transformed. And so now the Christian life, of course, is turning to this Christ day by day by day in dependence and in the confidence that we can really change. Let's pray. want us to give us a moment to um, examine our life. Jesus invites us to repent, whether for the first time, um, whether for the 10,000th time, to admit our sin to God and ask for His help. Or maybe you've never really taken it seriously. Maybe we've been complacent. Or maybe you feel like you're too far gone. So we look to Jesus as the one who has experienced the fire of baptism for us on the cross. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross. 
We thank you for Jesus, the one worthy of all honor, of all glory and respect, yet treated like a criminal and a sinner so that we could be forgiven. Lord, help us to change. We trust in you and in your spirit, in your ability to change us day by day into your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen.